You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Dr. Eric Tucker, the co-founder and executive director of Brooklyn Laboratory Charter School. In this discussion with Tom, Eric recalls how debate changed his academic trajectory, how he overcame learning disabilities and earned a doctorate at Oxford. They also discuss how Brooklyn Lab responded to the closure of school and their 10-point plan for reopening schools with safety and equity in mind. If you want to get right to the 10-point plan, just go ahead and jump forward to minute 20. All right, let's listen in. Eric Tucker, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having me. Eric, um, I didn't recall that you um, you went to Brown, and uh, among other things, you, you uh, studied African-American studies. Uh, why is that? I grew up farming uh, in a small town in Iowa um, and initially thought when I arrived at college that I was going to study environmental studies uh, and work on issues of environmental justice uh, you know, from the environmental studies department. Uh, and right across the, uh, the street uh, ended up uh, in my first couple days connecting with a professor uh, who was asking questions about teaching and learning, about philosophy, and ultimately about human dignity and what does it mean to be human. Um, and those questions about how ordinary working people come together to influence history um, with a lens of equity and a lens of racial and economic justice were central to the curriculum in Africana studies. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, based on uh, relationships with a handful of faculty members, based on uh, the, the kind of human community uh, that was growing up around uh, an African-American studies program that was being uh, kind of uh, made into a department, uh, you know, attracted me uh, as a student. Um, and uh, it was the set of peers and the set of faculty members that that I loved working with. Eric, did you, you, you uh, have a deep appreciation for debate? Did, did, did that start in high school and did it continue at Brown? Yeah, so uh, I'm a, you know, somebody who, in junior high in particular, struggled with boredom, right? So school felt like being uh, kind of surrounded by students who were disengaged. Uh, and one day, uh, you know, a worksheet would be passed out, it would be collected the next. Um, and uh, so school was alienating, it was disengaging, uh, and there wasn't much connection between the stuff that I loved learning uh, and, uh, you, you know, kind of what was being offered. Uh, but in middle school, my English teacher assigned us a debate. Um, and I remember distinctly uh, the, the experience of the classroom and the uh, teacher uh, kind of being the coach on the side that ultimately our job was to work hard, to prepare, to understand evidence, to clash with each other um, and our peers and the teacher and outside experts that they invited in would listen and would assess and would provide feedback. Um, so in middle school, I kind of uh, was interested in debate and filed that away. Um, in high school, I started debating and competitively or uh, in, a, in an interscholastic way and uh, quickly 
fell in love, that there was an opportunity for uh, kind of political uh, reasoning and thought for evidence-based advocacy um, and to make the case uh, for both how badly uh, the adults at that time had broken things and uh, how critical it was that we uh, choose another path forward, whether it was uh, kind of U.S. foreign policy to China or our immigration policy, our education policy, or our criminal justice system. Uh, debate in high school provided an outlet for my voice to be heard uh, and an opportunity for me to uh, kind of dive deeply into issues that I was passionate about um, and emerge on the other side, uh, you know, having uh, kind of channeled my immature competitiveness in a way that was like so ruthlessly academic that I learned more by mistake than I ever might have uh, kind of intentionally enrolling in a course and, and trying to study the same topics. Uh, when I got to Brown, I uh, started working uh, to build debate programs in urban public schools, uh, first in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, Atlanta and Baltimore, um, and then later on in my in my undergraduate years, um, you know, uh, I helped get an organization off the ground to start debate programs in urban public schools around the country. So, with those two data points uh, of appreciating uh, debate and um, your interest in social justice, um, how and why did you end up at Oxford doing a, a, a master's and then a doctoral degree in measurement? I had worked my way through undergraduate and uh, learned a lot about how prisons and schools uh, in Rhode Island worked and had a a strong commitment to uh, learning how to build schools that better reflect the, the needs of young people uh, and uh, their families. I ultimately uh, still wanted the opportunity to have what might have been a more traditional undergraduate experience where I got to spend time reading and writing uh, and, and thinking and doing research and was blessed to uh, kind of apply and, and be invited to go over to, to Oxford to study uh, with a mentor of mine. Um, and over the course of a couple years, looked at two things. One was uh, how uh, the, the relationships and networks that facilitate uh, access to resources and to uh, kind of collective action form. Um, so what are the kinds of practices that allow for the formation or deformation uh, you know, of relationships that facilitate action? Um, and two, how do we better develop measurement tools across the social sciences um, and think about uh, kind of tools that are more relevant, practical, usable uh, by practitioners um, and by experts? That um, connects the dots. Um, we may have met before, Brooklyn Lab, but uh, after leading the um, National Debate Organization, uh, doing a few other things, you you had uh, almost eight years ago, you had this idea of uh, starting a, a new kind of school in the heart of Brooklyn. Maybe give us the, the quick origin story of uh, Brooklyn Lab. 
Yep. So I uh, worked for about a decade and a half as first a teacher and then an instructional leader, uh, starting debate programs uh, in city school systems around the country, um, and then moved to Brooklyn. Uh, you know, right about uh, ten or eleven years ago now. Um, I during the last financial crisis, I uh, was supporting the Federal Reserve uh, system, uh, the the Bank of New York, to uh, think through uh, it, you know its response to the financial crisis and uh, you know and some of its uh, involvement with the public sector uh, and, and with public schools. Um, and uh, at that point, met my now wife, Erin uh, Moat, um, and she and I. Uh, were uh, kind of thinking through where, uh, as our relationship grew, we were thinking through where we would want to uh, build a family, where we would want to contribute professionally after she left Obama's White House and I left the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, And Brooklyn Lab uh, grew from those initial conversations um, and conversations focused on what was the type of public school that we would want to send our own children to? What were the opportunities that uh, children growing up in the neighborhood that we lived uh, in Fort Greene and downtown Brooklyn needed, but for which there was kind of uh, disparate or unequal access? And what might be the ways that uh, the, that a public school in downtown Brooklyn could prepare all learners to have access to a public education uh, that worked each day to prepare them uh, for a meaningful and purposeful adult life. Uh, one of the insights was that the uh, the kind of future of work uh, was evolving much more quickly uh, than it had for previous generations, um, and that downtown Brooklyn uh, had companies like Etsy or Amplify or 2U or MakerBot um, alongside, uh, you know, kind of long-term public housing, uh, you know, complexes and multi-generational poverty. And the question was, uh, you know, in a world where only a couple hundred yards separated the young people we now serve uh, from an economy uh, that really uh, embodied the future of work, the future of, of design. How might we build connections uh, you know, so that young people had access to those charging stations for learning embodied by uh, kind of future-leaning employers, by universities, and by youth-serving uh, or nonprofit organizations? Uh, and cultural institutions. So today, Brooklyn Lab is uh, a, a famous school, well, well-known school. You serve um, a very diverse uh, group of young people that bring uh, a lot of complex needs to school. Uh, that when I think about what's distinctive about your school, it, it would be a, a distinctively um, wonderful but uh, challenging um population that you're serving. And uh, I'd love to have you reflect on, on um, the, the beautifully diverse group of young people that you serve and, and maybe note a, f- a few of the things that uh, are unique about Lab's response to that group of students and, uh, and your location. 
Yeah, so uh, Brooklyn Lab is nearby because it's in downtown Brooklyn. It's proximate to, to lower Manhattan. It's nearby um, a set of selective public schools that, uh, you know, for their incoming freshman class, the average SAT scores is, uh, you know, a, a perfect score, right? So Brooklyn Tech, Stuyvesant um, are um, kind of world-class public institutions uh, that screen uh, based on an entry test and uh, only serve young people who uh, perform exceptionally well in the eighth grade. Um, there's also uh, world-class schools, uh, you know, Brooklyn Friends, Collegiate, Packer, nearby um, that offer a world-class education to young people who can pay forty, sixty, or eighty thousand dollars a year to attend, um, the, you know, an elite private school. We believe that Brooklyn and this country uh, are capable of providing a world-class college preparatory education that genuinely prepares each young person uh, for success uh, in adult life, not only for those who can afford to pay uh, or for those who are fortunate uh, you know, to be exceptional multiple-choice test takers, uh, but ultimately for uh, the range of young people who uh, live in Brooklyn, which you know, is the fourth largest city in, in America if you kind of just take Brooklyn. Brooklyn. It's it's a larger school system and a larger city than, say, Houston. Um, and so, uh, what we learned when we took the position uh, that all learners deserve access to a quality public education uh, is that that was a kind of curious and unusual position uh, for public schools to take. That uh, in New York, uh, public education is less a private good or a, or a public good, uh, and more often what you might call a positional good. Uh, so depending on who your family is and how sharply they throw elbows, uh, depending on who your family is and how sophisticated they are in navigating, uh, you know, kind of uh, entry processes and application processes, you know, the same student might end up at a dramatically different uh, middle school uh, or high school. School. When we took the position that we were committed to being a world-class school that served all young people, what we learned is that there were many young people in Brooklyn who uh, were not made to feel welcome uh, in the schools that they had previously attended. Um, and so we uh, serve young people who are curious and who uh, are wonderful and who uh, have ambitions for their lives and for their families, um, but also, uh, you know, the same young people who have strengths and, uh, you know, gaps, in, you know, in their previous learning. Uh, ultimately, uh, every child uh, is, uh, you know, born with strengths and gaps uh, and develops them over time. Uh, I uh, have a doctorate from Oxford and I read at a first grade level. I was able to kind of work my way through an Ivy League school, uh, but I also was uh, almost entirely disengaged uh, at my uh, public junior high. Uh, in Iowa. And so the same student can perform dramatically different in different contexts. Um, and each student has a jagged profile with some strengths and some weaknesses. Uh, we uh, serve, uh, you know, a whole range of students at Brooklyn Lab, including 
complex learners who, uh, you know, due to uh, kind of previous experiences with learning in school, uh, come to us with considerable gaps, um, but also come with come to us with a desire to prepare for college and prepare for adult life. One of the things that you do that I appreciate is uh, is a lot of uh, one-on-one and small group tutoring. You, you must, you, you make that a real priority and you've got a, a unique staffing model to make that happen, right? Yeah. So, uh, for instance, next year we'll have 40 uh, tutors, uh, you know, small group instruction uh, fellows who work with our partner organization, uh, Innovate EDU, um, and who provide small group instruction, either, uh, you know, in uh, reading interventions or math interventions, in homework support, or uh, kind of reviewing student writing and providing feedback. Um, We kind of early on had the insight that uh, that our country doesn't take uh, uh, kind of teacher education uh, with a level of seriousness or care uh, that it's deserve that it deserves, and so we asked the question: uh, What would it look like to invest in educators with the same level of intentionality uh, and care? that our country invests in, uh, say, neuroscientists uh, or in surgeons. Um, And a part of that is a multiple-year residency. Um, So we have, uh, you know, emerging educators, uh, you know, participate in a small group instruction fellowship for a year. We follow that with two years of the school paying for uh, graduate school uh, in education for both uh, the the content area that the teacher uh, wants to teach in, as well as for special education. Um, And I've just found that uh, by investing in professional learning uh, and opportunities to practice, by committing to uh, professional growth and opportunities for professional advancement, uh, we uh, you know, have been able to to build a faculty um, and a teaching core uh, that is reflective of the community that we serve, uh, and that ultimately uh, doesn't put artificial barriers uh, in the way of uh, you know, kind of folks in their twenties, thirties, forties, or fifties who want to be educators, uh, but who just haven't had uh, you know a kind of pathway to the profession. Hey listeners, it's your host Jessica. I wanted to just take a quick break to share an important resource with you. Recently, our team launched the Getting Through Microsite to support educators, leaders, and families on the path forward during this unprecedented and uncertain time. There's something there for everyone, whether you're just getting started with your transition to distance learning or you've had plans in place for a while and now have the opportunity to share your work and guidance with others. We hope this gives you a place for your voice and an opportunity to learn. We know we will get through this together. Check it out at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. Okay, now back to the show. Eric, I'd love to um, dive into some of the the great things that you're doing at lab, but uh, we're talking today uh, during a pandemic, um, a global pandemic, a global health crisis, we just finished the month of April, which was uh, the worst and weirdest month, I, I would argue, in American history, uh, where, where we've had 30 million people thrown into un- unemployment, another 30 million people um, 
that, that probably tried to register for unemployment and were unable or have been furloughed or have had their hours docked. And so you've got basically half the American workforce um, out of work and the others in a, in a frenzied uh, set of new protocols trying to uh, stay safe and do portions of their old job. And Brooklyn Lab, like uh, almost every other school in the country, is, is now closed. And um, you and I over the last few weeks have had the opportunity to begin thinking about how and when uh, schools like Brooklyn Lab will open in the fall. And uh, we deeply appreciate your, uh, your thoughtful approach on this. You took the initiative to begin to, to jot down some notes that became a, a 10-point plan that we uh, published recently. Uh, but before we walk through that plan, maybe just some reflections on what's happening in your, your uh, Brooklyn Lab community, because I, I know it's uh, been deeply affected by this pandemic. Yeah, so we uh, communicated the week before uh, uh, the March 8th week. And then on uh, March 16th, we closed physical brick and mortar operation uh, down uh, for what we then assumed would be a matter of weeks. And we uh, began home learning, uh, kind of remote learning home instruction uh, for our scholars. And so we have uh, like, you know, 57 million uh, other K-12 to uh, students around the country. Our students have transitioned from brick and mortar to online and virtual learning. Um, and uh, we have worked to be uh, kind of conscious of uh, our role as a public school in this time, uh, meaning that we are uh, the primary channel of communication with Brooklyn Lab scholars uh, and families. We are the primary source of information uh, for many of our employees and how we respond uh, as an institution uh, matters tremendously. We've been pretty hard hit by the pandemic and that uh, is both in terms of uh, the losses that we've experienced uh, as a community. We've had students and faculty members uh, lose uh, loved ones who they live with, family members uh, were blessed not to have had any students or staff pass away, um, but many uh, kind of long-term members uh, you know, of our school community uh, have uh, gotten uh, the, the, the COVID virus um, and have passed away as a result. Um, so in many ways, uh, COVID has laid bare uh, the kind of existing inequity and inequality in our society. Um, and in our case, that means uh, kind of disparate impact, like the disparate uh, kind of allocation of health care uh, and jobs that would allow you to, to work uh, more safely, uh, the, the disparities in terms of uh, who's riding public transportation, um, who is most impacted by, uh, by job insecurity, et cetera. Um, so from a public health perspective, 
COVID has been devastating for the Brooklyn Lab community. Um, from an economic perspective, uh, we've had a lot of members uh, of our extended uh, families uh, lose their job. We've been fortunate to, uh, to be able to uh, commit to not uh, you know, kind of downsizing uh, during this school year or terminating uh, anybody as a result of budget shortfalls. Um, but we, um, you know, have been uh, hard hit by the economic downturn. Uh, and we've frankly been told to prepare uh, for what it would look like to be 20% down from a budget perspective or 30% down or 40% down. Um, and so, uh, from a budgetary perspective, from a public health perspective, it's been a pretty harrowing, uh, you know, two months. And as we begin to look towards next year, it's clear that there's a level of complexity uh, and uh, kind of seriousness uh, to what uh, kind of brick and mortar public schooling uh, will likely mean going forward. Uh, that the that the preparation for reentry uh, has become a very central focus uh, of our day to day life. In short, I think schools around America can uh, assume that they're going to have a small to uh, substantial, it's going to be a little bit different in every state and community, but uh, somewhere between 2 and 20% uh, drop in their budget. And simultaneously, every, every version of next year that you and I have investigated uh, costs more money to operate. Um, and that's the dilemma that you and I tried to address with our, uh, our guide to reopening, that it, it's inevitable that schools are going to have less money and be dealing with more complexity and more costs, making the 2021 20, uh, school year perhaps the most difficult, most challenging, most complicated uh, that, that any educators have, have ever experienced. I, and that's why um, you reached out and we began this work. Um, so I, I'd love to just have you um, talk about a couple of the points in this plan. We, we started the plan out by encouraging people to get organized and to mobilize. And, and if they have the capacity to perhaps have a person spearhead a planning for next year that's not running uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, schools this year, because it we have a group of uh, teachers and teacher leaders uh, fully immersed in trying to deliver services in a brand new way and simultaneously plan for something uh, that uh, looks like it's very complex. So we encourage people to try to mobilize a cross-functional team to look uh, broadly at um, health, wellness, safety, um, budgeting, transportation, and staffing issues for next year. Any other thoughts on this task of organizing and mobilizing? Well, one of the things you highlighted right up at the beginning is incredibly important. There's the work of response today. So how are we ensuring that families in crisis, families who have basic needs and are in the midst of trauma uh, and adversity that's, that's caused by the pandemic and the core and the downturn have the support they need. And a huge part of our focus at Brooklyn Lab uh, over the last several months has been how do we make sure that we're responding to the emergency, right? But 
even as we respond, we recognize that uh, we'll be inviting uh, kind of more uh, trouble and frustration if we don't begin uh, simultaneously uh, keeping an eye on what recovering and indeed reinventing what our core work is at a public school. Um, so, uh, you know, we would encourage uh, everybody, uh, to, you know, every public school around the country and every public school system uh, to create a team uh, that can serve as a nerve center. Uh, and what's important uh, about this is that historically, uh, you know, schools have been responsible for learning and for ensuring, you know, some amount of character development uh, and kind of human development for the first students. Uh, we are equally responsible for student learning and growth as we have been historically, but we have a new responsibility to safeguard health and wellness in the face of this pandemic. Uh, we're also uh, kind of, I think, newly uh, aware of our responsibility uh, to provide child care. Um, and, and, you know, and uh, we're, it's, it's kind of commonplace to talk about public education as preparing the workforce of tomorrow. Uh, it's become increasingly clear that another role that public schools place or play uh, is ensuring that today's workforce is able to be engaged professionally uh, and not uh, you know not uh, simply providing uh, child care throughout the day. So there's been uh, many professionals that are uh, kind of balancing between their responsibility as caregivers and their responsibility um, at work. And uh, being effective at child care, being effective at health and wellness safeguarding, and being effective at, 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 uh, at uh, advancing student learning uh, is uh, you know, a different mix of goals uh, than we had this time last year. And so we need to prepare differently. Um, as I said earlier, the pandemic has highlighted the degree to which existing uh, inequity is built into how we do public education. Uh, and one of the things that we highlighted in uh, our 10-point plan was the importance of taking steps to ensure that all students of all background can fully benefit from the plans uh, that come out uh, you know, of these, uh, these kind of school and system-based planning teams. Eric, the uh, second point in our plan was just to outline some of the potential reopening scenarios. It, um, th that turns out to be quite complex. I mean, what are some of the permutations that you're looking at at lab? Yeah, there was a, uh, a podcast I listened to this weekend that uh, asked whether uh, reopening schools in an era of social distancing is just difficult uh, or actually impossible. Um, and the more that you dig into what it looks like to serve lunch or run a physical education uh, program to host school assemblies, um, or even frankly, just to kind of 
open or you know to arrive uh, and dismiss students uh, in uh, you know in public school buildings that have been fortified uh, in response to uh, you know another epidemic, the school shooting epidemic. Uh, there are real complexities uh, to uh, kind of thinking through how do we maintain social distancing uh, for early childhood for middle school, for high school, right? There's there's a ton that happens uh, in school that makes social distancing seem pretty darn unrealistic. Um, you know, at Brooklyn Lab, we're looking at uh, whether A days and B days would allow for fewer total students, uh, you know, to be uh, involved. You could think of that as uh, kind of Staggering, another way we're looking at staggering time would be a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Uh, there's ways to uh, kind of place shift uh, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of not, you know, one classroom transitioning, uh, you know, in the hallway at a given time, uh, you know, or cohorts of students staying in a particular classroom uh, and adults transitioning between classrooms. Uh, there's been proposals that, you know, students should report to a homeroom and then participate in virtual learning uh, from there. Uh, one thing that is important to highlight is uh, that we have a lot of students uh, at Brooklyn Lab and around the country uh, whose immune systems are already compromised. Uh, we have a lot of uh, students who are a part of multi-generational families uh, that have uh, medically fragile individuals in them. Uh, and any uh, you know, plan that we come up with operationally uh, can't just uh, kind of focus on the medical well-being of you know, the students under our care, um, but also needs to account for who those students are going home to. Um, and for, uh, you know, our families that have members that, uh, you know, were childhood asthmatics or who are recent cancer survivors uh, have weakened immune systems for one reason or another, it's critical that we treat social distancing uh, as a life and death matter. Um, and the reality is public schools are not today uh, terribly well set up uh, to uh, tackle things like contact tracing or screening upon entry, uh, kind of monitoring of personally protective equipment supply chains, uh, or uh, kind of communicating uh, crisply uh, and directly updates uh, from public health authorities. So there's a lot of challenges around what the kind of specific operational scenarios might look like. Uh, and those are all happening against a backdrop of a fair amount of uh, uncertainty about how effective our collective public health response will be uh, and how effective are uh, kind of the response of our politicians and public institutions are uh, to some of the economic and social implications uh, of the pandemic. Everything you mentioned is uh, complicated and costly. And, and again, just to reiterate the dilemma that you, if you're operating with 20% smaller budget and trying to do things that are uh, e extremely expensive and complicated, it's uh, unbelievably challenging. That brings us to the third and fourth category, Eric. This is um, around budgeting and staffing. Um, any 
how, how would you summarize uh, your approach and what you're advising others as they think about budget, budgeting and uh, staffing model for next year? So one of the things to say out of the gate uh, is that equity doesn't mean that every student has exactly the same set of resources devoted to them. Uh, equity means that we're so committed to every student having a shot uh, at having a successful transition to a meaningful adult life. Uh, and because every child deserves a shot, we need to match resources uh, to our educational goals uh, and ensure that every young person has the opportunities and the supports that they deserve. It doesn't break a sweat to contemplate balancing budgets on the back of our most vulnerable students. One of the things that our piece highlights uh, is the importance for uh, kind of creative thinking uh, to uh, answer the small thinking or the siloing of resources. Uh, it calls on us to uh, recognize that it's not acceptable, for instance, to have a student who uh, has a full-time one-to-one classroom aid or a student who needs occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech services. Uh, or counseling uh, to have fewer resources than they need uh, just because we're in the middle of uh, you know, a medically induced coma uh, for the global economy. We, uh, as, as a public school, take that equity uh, imperative very seriously. Uh, we recognize that it's a critical time uh, to cut expenses, um, but that you can't cut your way out of uh, this situation. It's a critical opportunity to invest in new opportunities to connect with families, uh, to engage students, uh, to invest in the professional development and learning of staff, and to think through what are those new programmatic elements uh, that might better uh, allow that your, you know, our school to weather the next leg of this, the journey, uh, to weather this next round, uh, you know, of, of this of the storm. Um, we believe that uh, you know every school should be kind of uh, looking through what the potential scenarios are. Uh, you know whether you're, you're talking ten percent down or twenty percent down or forty percent down, um, and what the priorities that are most linked to mission and most linked to student learning, uh, safety, uh, and, you know, and well-being are. Um, we don't have great answers here, uh, but one of the reasons that you kind of go through planning processes uh, is to make sure that as reality changes, you've already gone through, uh, you know, some of the, the kind of evidence-based, fact-based exercises of what it would take to respond. Uh, staff uh, and facilities uh, are, you know, the two main expenses that we have as a public school. Um, and, uh, you know, if we've heard anything, it's that this is going to require uh, kind of more staff to respond uh, and more facilities. Um, and so while it's not popular, uh, that means that public schools need to engage in direct communication with their stakeholders, with, you know, the state. Uh, with uh, families, with, with with their faculty, about what would be nice to do 
that's not today possible because we have to do less to make sure that we're in a situation uh, to do a, a, a smaller set of things at an exceptionally high level. But even as we prioritize uh, in order to make sure that our academic uh, and developmental ambitions for young people are realized, uh, we need to uh, you know, acknowledge that, uh, that from schedules to staffing, uh, from uh, kind of the blend of brick and mortar to remote, uh, you know, school is going to look different and feel different uh, this fall, uh, the fall after this fall. Um, and, uh, you know, potentially we're in the kind of uh, moment of sorting through what the new normal is. Eric, uh, the fifth and sixth part of our plan uh, really talked about the beginning of school and some things that uh, we're encouraging school leaders to think about. We talked about um, what that first week might be like, how we reconnect and uh, reculturate and reassess. Uh, and, and then, however we're operating, uh, look for ways to practice agency and engagement. Uh, how are you thinking about uh, the, those first few days back, how, however they uh, occur? Reconnecting is critical because we're building relationship and school culture within the context of profound trauma. Uh, students might have lost family members uh, or have family members who have lost jobs or, or stability. Um, it's been a taxing, uh, you know, period of time, physically, emotionally, uh, from an identity and safety perspective. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're we're looking at lessons from organizations like Turnaround for Children or Castle uh, to understand both the social, emotional, and the mental health. Uh, challenges that we're preparing to, to meet. Um, we are using diagnostics like iReady, NWA Map, uh, the College Board, um, in order to be prepared to assess where our students are returning to us at uh, and what the gaps that we might need to address are. Um, we uh, are getting great guidance from folks like uh, the National Center for Learning Disabilities about how to effectively diagnose learning gaps and make sure that there are robust multi-tiered systems of support to address them. Uh, you know, and we, you know, have the, uh, the kind of notion of learner variability uh, at the center, that there's kind of evidence-based factors and strategies about how to best meet the needs of young people. One of the things that became clear very quickly, and this is the sixth point in our plan, uh, is that there's a set of things we need to spend time practicing and reinforcing as a school uh, that matter in a brick and mortar context, but that matter that much more uh, in a virtual context. And that includes uh, cultivating the agency, the self-awareness, the self-management, uh, the, the uh, decision-making skills um, of uh, all of our students. Um, and it includes ensuring that a baseline level of uh, digital literacy uh, and fluency is in place. We hope 
that we return to school uh, and a vaccine is quickly available uh, and uh, our full school community is able to fully participate uh, in in physical uh, gatherings and connection as a school community. We are preparing for uh, some students to need remote options for much of the coming year uh, and potentially the year thereafter. Uh, because of that, um, it's critical that we uh, kind of understand the research-based steps uh, that can be used to support students uh, to become more effective uh, at executive function, uh, more effective advocates for their own learning uh, and manager of, managers of their own learning experience. In the uh, seventh and eighth points in the plan, we talked about using data to improve continuity. One thing we know for sure, every school in America is going to need a better continuity of learning plan. Um, if they haven't already ad adopting a, a digital platform and ensuring one-to-one take-home devices, strengthening efforts uh, to, to ensure that every family has access to uh, broadband. And then beyond the, the basics of continuity of learning, regardless of what mode we're operating, uh, we, we talked about the, the need and opportunity to really reimagine uh, approaches to core services that we deliver. Um, anything you'd like to point to there on the opportunities to reimagine how school could work? So I've been grateful for the leadership of Digital Promise in creating space to uh, uh, to interrogate the accessibility uh, of courseware and tools uh, for learners um, because there uh, are learners for whom uh, the kind of standard uh, approach to online learning uh, will work fine. And there's a whole set of other learners uh, who deserve accommodations, who deserve differentiation and support. Um, you know, in ways that uh, we are still learning uh, to do well um, and in ways that uh, the newly formed Educating All Learners Alliance uh, is supporting the country uh, to approach. So first, the accessibility of technology matters. Uh, second, uh, the uh, seamless exchange uh, of data between secure platforms or the seamless and secure exchange uh, of data is really important. Uh, too often, schools stand up data infrastructure uh, without uh, being fully attentive to data interoperability. Um, and what uh, might not be clear in a brick and mortar context, but is painfully apparent uh, in a virtual context, is that most schools have operational data one place, attendance data another, family communication data in a third system, formative assessment in one system, uh, interim and summative assessment in another, the grade book, uh, you, you, know, you know, or uh, the results of courseware, uh, you know, in, an, in even yet another, uh, the way that we build our data infrastructure uh, in order to uh, ensure that we have access to information, uh, you know, about students and that students 
parents and educators have access to the data that they need in order to plan and set goals um, and in order to track progress against those those goals is absolutely critical. Uh, privacy, uh, you know, is the flip side of the interoperability uh, coin. That in a world where we don't build robust data infrastructure, uh, we end up having, uh, you know, people downloading CSV files or PDFs, and there being uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a uh, you know a wash of uh, personally identifiable information. So privacy is even more important. Data interoperability is even more important, um, and the access of tools uh, matters tremendously. Uh, we've also seen at Brooklyn Lab to address point eight, the reimagination of core systems, uh, that there is even more demand for conversations around things like mastery and competency-based uh, grading uh, and uh, feedback and revision of student work. Um, there's even more demand for the important role um, of talent systems, uh, you know, and of next generation assessment, uh, you know, and what role those school, those those types of approaches uh, can play in the in, in the future of school. In the last two points, we encouraged uh, school and system leaders to iterate and communicate, and to consider the worst but model the best. I guess, Eric, if uh, the one thing this has taught all of us is um, th this experience is so far outside the forecast envelope of anyone in the economy and education is just uh, evidence that we're living through a time where novelty and complexity uh, will continue to astound us. This uh, new future is uh, the, the kind of world that our we're leaving for our young people when the unexpected becomes the norm. Um, you you added uh, the words consider the worst. Um, say say more about how we should think about future uh, possibilities and and factor those into our uh, into our plans, but but continue to uh, forge ahead with. Um, doing the best that we can in the context that we're that we're given. Yeah. So considering the worst means acknowledging that there uh, is a humanitarian disaster, a humanitarian crisis uh, that is underway. Uh, that it will take. Uh, all of our best thinking uh, and all of our kind of shared problem solving to address. Uh, and that includes uh, ensuring that there's consistent access to food and health care uh, and uh, stable housing. Uh, it includes ensuring that uh, families have access to mental health services uh, and to child care. Um, and that we acknowledge that the recovery process, uh, you know, is going to mirror the stages of grieving uh, and recovery uh, from loss. Modeling the best uh, for me um, entails recognizing that there's a once in a in a generation opportunity to rethink what young people deserve today. 
uh, XQ, uh, which is a key partner for Brooklyn Lab um, and is a network of schools uh, that that inspire our educators and our family uh, tremendously, uh, is fond of uh, reminding us that classrooms today uh, look very similar uh, to what they looked like 100 years ago, uh, but so do schedules. Right, but so do uh, uh, you know, kind of the uh, Carnegie units that add up to high school diplomas, um, and so there's uh, a way in which, as educators, we have uh, you know demurred or delayed thinking seriously about what kinds of systems uh, will actually place young people at the center, what kind of systems will privilege equity uh, and excellence and make sure that young people are set up to, uh, to succeed. And there's a moment now uh, where we have six months where physical operation uh, will not be the primary thing that schools are doing. Um, and it's critical that we uh, recognize whether we're talking about data systems or facilities, about staffing plans or academic intervention uh, you know, approaches. This is a once in a generation moment for us to plan and then open our doors this fall and then as fall and winter come to continue to plan and continue to make adjustments so that we end up with a system three years from now and 30 years from now uh, that acknowledges the darkness and the trauma of this moment uh, but also honors that at this time in history facing this extraordinary challenge educators and families and students uh, are banding together and looking for ways to honor the unique strengths interests and abilities of young people dr eric tucker uh, we we really appreciate you taking the initiative to launch this uh, this 10-point plan eric we appreciate um you and eric your your leadership uh, to the Brooklyn Lab community, to, uh, to New York City, uh, to and through the XQ community. And uh, your, your work is really of national importance and it continues through um, these kind of outreach efforts. So we, we, we deeply appreciate your work and your, uh, your thoughtful approach uh, in these really difficult times. Thanks for being with us, Eric. Thank you. It's uh, in these challenging times, your leadership is making a difference. You uh, launched a site called Getting Through, uh, you know, out of the gate. And, and that kind of reframe uh, for us in Brooklyn mattered a lot. The thought that there was a physical and a health component to getting through and a mental health uh, and a uh, kind of social, emotional well-being part of getting through. 
um, the uh, reflection that this is going to be a process uh, and that if we uh, kind of band together uh, and share insights and share inspirations, share frustrations and setbacks, but commit to uh, what young people deserve, uh, that we can get through together. Um, Thank you for your leadership during these times. This 10-point plan would not have come uh, into formation without uh, the kind of generosity and the collaboration, uh, you, you know, that are kind of reflected in in kind of uh, pulling it together to, uh, uh, as a team. Uh, and we uh, appreciate the work you're doing uh, in these troubled times and, and look forward to continuing to work together. Well, as item nine says, iterate and communicate. So we'll keep the plan updated uh, and keep learning with... Uh, All those in our community, uh, Eric Tucker, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. A big thanks to Dr. Eric Tucker for his leadership and the work he and the team at Brooklyn Lab are doing to serve learners. For more, check out our discussion with Tom Rooney and Scott Rowe on how their California and Illinois districts are making the best of remote learning. And before you go, listeners, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And of course, hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any weekly or bonus episodes. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.